Hey, let me just encourage you to stay standing for the reading of God's word as we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read down to verse 7 today. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. Paul writes and says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord uh, for this morning. You can be seated. Good morning. How you doing? Good. First Timothy chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, go there. That's where we're going to be. And... uh, for our live streamers out there, First Timothy chapter 3 is where you should also be going, and we're glad to have you with us in whatever context you're in. Maybe you're traveling or uh, we're sick, and we're praying for you guys just as much as we're praying for those who are gathered here today and excited to get into God's Word, and we are in the middle of this book that we're studying called First Timothy, and it's a verse-by-verse study. We're calling it The Dearest Place on Earth because you found it. In case you were looking for it today, this is it, and it's not because we're perfect. Because the minute you stepped in here, it became imperfect. Am I right or am I right? But it's the dearest place on earth because this is God's people. This is a people ransomed um, for Jesus Christ by his work on the cross. And we're set to, uh, set free to love one another, to serve one another, to care for one another. We're set to organize ourselves in a certain way. And so we see that as we unfold this book called First Timothy, a letter Paul wrote to Timothy, and we're in chapter 3 now, and so the title of the message this morning is The Qualifications of an Elder. We live, um, we live in an anti-authority age. At best, in our day, we live in an age of suspicion. And often right now where that suspicion ends up locating itself is whatever's going on at the top. There's something that must be off and if we only knew what was going on in that little, whatever that group is or that individual is, then we would, we would be able to tell what, what's possibly going on or going wrong. Or, And of course this is all confirmed by the reality of the fact that we're influenced by so many headlines that we read, Right? Uh, one headline after another about elder malfeasance, about a pastoral disqualification. I don't know about you, but it seems to be happening more often and more often. Uh, That being said, though, let me just make a note. Um, The Washington Post, not wild about a bunch of faithful men doing their job, FYI. Okay? So just understand that where this is happening, there's also a multitude of men that are serving in this role that we're going to talk about today that are doing it faithfully And the sign that they're doing it faithfully is that they're not writing articles about them. So we have a few that make the papers and and therefore it shapes the way we see things as in most leadership is bad. If I were to look around enough, if I were to look around long enough, I would find it. I know. And we're tempted to be like, because Men are sinners. We should just throw the whole thing out. We should go with a new system. And here's why we can't just throw out the whole authority thing. We can't throw out the authority thing because God designed the authority thing. And so as we come to chapter 3, let it be known that it is no coincidence that the office of elder is specifically laid out immediately after chapter 2, 9 to 15. Namely, what did we find there? Well, we found there that women are not permitted to teach, 
or to exercise authority over a man. And so then the question would naturally be, okay, understand, but then who? Correct? Seems reasonable. Well, he's going to answer that for us today. Paul's going to share with us that ultimately, here's what we know, Jesus is the chief shepherd of his church. And by his Holy Spirit, Acts 20, 28 says, the Holy Spirit makes elders elders. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers, it says. So Jesus, the chief shepherd, by his spirit, raises up under shepherds, and these under shepherds are to be men. You'll notice that in chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. These are to be men who are essentially player coaches, okay? If you've ever seen a sports team, Imagine a coach who's actually on the field as well, playing and organizing the team at the same time. That's what a shepherd is. An under-shepherd of God's people is a pastor and a sheep all at the same time. And they are given the responsibility to care for the flock and serve in this office of elder. Now, some of you have come from a church with a very different structure. Maybe some of you came from a non-denominational church, and your church didn't really have elders. They had kind of a consultant board, right? Where's the pastor and then a couple consultants. And the problem with a consultant board is that that can very easily start to swing into kind of a yes-man team, right? Where you've got one leader, and you've got a bunch of people around him that are basically saying yes to whatever he wants to do. Maybe some of you came from kind of a group of like corporate CEOs where the church didn't really have leadership outside of the staff, but they had some corporate CEO types that were making business decisions. Maybe some of you came from a, a Baptist church where some Baptist churches, they get this flipped. They make deacons elders and elders deacons, and deacons are the ones in control, uh, oversight, spiritually. Maybe that you've had, uh, maybe you have had um, a situation where you had a congregational rule where the people just led uh, pretty much everything. Or maybe you've had a situation where you've been in a church where you had elders, but they weren't the right people in the right role. I don't know what your background is, but Paul's going to give us a lot of clarity today. In fact, I think part of what's going on for the reason Paul had to write this is quite likely what was going on in Ephesus was that there were unqualified individuals who had become elders and had fallen into various forms of sin, which is likely what gave them over to the type of teaching that was starting to run rampant in the church. And so Paul has this necessity, this need to lay out the qualifications for elders. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And when this is functioning well, when elders are doing their jobs, again, I go back to the uh, uh, the theme of First Timothy, that when the elders are doing their jobs, this is the kind of ordering that God has designed for the church, which reveals the mystery of Christ in the gospel most accurately, most effectively, and most beautifully, again, not based on what the world will naturally receive easily, but based on what Christ wants perceived out of his church. And so when it comes to the level of ultimate spiritual authority as it pertains to that which is on earth, in that which is entrusted to us as human beings, we're going to speak about that highest level of authority in the church today. And here's the big idea for this morning. God wants his church overseen by a plurality of elder qualified men. So if you found this unclear, you weren't sure, this is what God's after. This is what Paul's telling us. It should matter to you. Hey, you're here and you're new. And you're like, this is my first week or my second week. And you're like, man, I'm trying to look for a church home. I mean, I'm praying for people all the time. You're writing that down in your prayer requests. And you're trying to get some categories maybe. I'm trying to figure out what should I be looking for in a church. Here's what you should be looking for, at least in part in a church, a church with godly, qualified plurality of elder qualified men. You, you need this. You want to be looking for a church that has the right biblical structure to it. And that's functioning appropriately. And so we're going to look at this and we're going to give you everything you need to make this part of your church decision 
process, and we're going to walk through it like this. Elder qualified men have, and we're going to call it five uh, things. They got five things, okay? Because I can't think of a better word that sums them all up. If I was in preaching class right now, I would be docked right now. A minus already on this sermon, and it's not getting better. Won't be able to get back over the top. Elder, qualified men, have five, I'm doing it, things. I'm not in seminary anymore. Five things. <laughs> All right. Number one, a well-meaning aspiration. Elder, qualified men, have a well-meaning aspiration. Verse one. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. If anyone aspires... To the office of overseer, he desires a noble task, okay? So interestingly about the uh, phrase office of overseer, it's one word. It's the word episkopos in the Greek, office of overseer. It literally means overseership. Your responsibility, what is it? Overseership of the church. Now, what you'll find in the Bible, which is kind of gets a little bit confusing, is that there are three terms used for this office that describe different aspects of the role pertaining to this office, okay? So I want to give you those. One is here in the text. It's overseer. The other two that you're more common to hear are pastor and elder. All three of those terms are used interchangeably to describe different aspects of the role of one office. Understood? So let me just tease out some of the dynamics. When you talk about or use the word overseer, and you see that in the Bible, it's focusing on those who serve as the leaders or the managers of the church. That's the idea. When the word pastor is used, it's speaking specifically to that aspect of the role of caring for and protecting the church. And shepherds, pastors, shepherd pastors, have a specific function or a primary task, which is feeding the sheep, proclaiming the word of God. And then you have this, the third one is elder, and, and I love this because it meant aged or gray-headed. Okay? So we know who we're looking for. However, when it comes to the New Testament writings, okay, what we find is the term is actually used to describe spiritual maturity. So while gray-headedness should show someone or prove someone to be mature, it doesn't necessarily mean you are spiritually mature. And so as it's used in the New Testament, we see that that's the terminology that's explained. Let me see if I can help, maybe give some context to our church just for a second to understand it. We have a 11 pastor elders in our church. You'll note that predominantly uh, we have pastors and those are the men that are on staff with us. And then we have a subset of elders that are primarily made up of non-vocational elders that make up what we would consider our ruling elders or our ruling board, okay? And we think there's some freedom here and we see a passage like 1 uh, Timothy 5.17 giving some distinction where apparently there was a subset of the group of pastor elders that were entrusted with the preaching and teaching and a subset of the elders that were entrusted primarily with the ruling. It says in 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, which can mean honor in the sense of honor and honor in the sense of financial contribution or remuneration, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So let all, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, but especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So it seems like a subset of those elders were focused primarily in preaching and teaching, and we've entrusted that primarily to our pastors because we pay them to spend the time that they need that a non-vocational elder doesn't have to do the work primarily of preaching and teaching. And then we have a group of predominantly, although there is some staff involvement, but we always lean towards having a majority of non-vocational elders in the ruling aspect of our team, the ruling board, for this reason. We want to, to heavily weight it to their side because in a staff dynamic, you can very easily see that devolve into a yes-man group. Technically, I'm the staff's boss, 
how's that going to work on the elder board? If you bring in non-vocational guys, you give the protection that you need for the church to ensure that I'm not just pulling one over my staff who gets paid by working here. Does that make sense? So we think there's wisdom in that to bring non-vocational elders in and let them weigh heavily in the ruling aspect of the board. So that's just the dynamic that we have going on. So sometimes people are thinking, man, this church is getting so big and all this stuff. But when you think about it, with 11 pastor elders in the church, we have about one pastor for every 150 or so people, which is essentially like what a church of 150, which is pretty average, would have in a church. So by God's grace, there is a good spread, and I wanted to kind of just give you a little background of where we're at and how we see this. That being said, it starts, though, with the desire to want to do it, okay? And so he's speaking into something very interesting. This isn't about gifting. This isn't about character. This is about desire. And there's no doubt we could agree that people would, could seek the office of elder for bad reasons, correct? I've got a few. Um, could it be perceived as a powerful position? I'm going to go with yes. Could it be perceived as a place to elevate your platform? To be seen with a certain prestige? For sure. All those things are problems. But here's the, here's the issue, though. Just because there are potentially bad reasons to aspire to want to be an elder doesn't mean the aspiration altogether is bad. Aspiration in general is not the issue. It's what kind of aspiration do you have? In fact, what Paul's telling us is a desire for this office is precisely where things have to begin. Okay, theologians would, would kind of distinguish, when you talk about, is someone called to ministry? Have you ever heard that phrase before? Is someone called to ministry? Here's the clearest way we would understand what that looks like from an internal subjective sense. Are you called to ministry? You ready? You called to pastoral ministry? Here's the, here's the question. Do you aspire to the office of overseer? Okay? Delight yourself in the Lord to give you the desires of your heart. Is your heart desiring of, delighting in, wanting to walk in this responsibility? Because here's what Paul's saying. Not all elder qualified men want this office, but it's essential that those who serve in this office do. You've got to want it. First Peter 5, verse 2, doesn't fall very far from this at all. It says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. We need men who aspire to this role. And he's saying this saying is trustworthy. This is one of Paul's go-to phrases in the pastoral epistles, okay? He's saying, you can take this to the bank. It deserves repeating. If you aspire to this office, you desire a noble task. This is well worth it. The word noble there means worthwhile. Why is this important? Well, because in our day, this, isn't, this is not... Being an elder, maybe in the context of church can be a cool thing, but in the context of our world today, it's really not that sexy. There was a day, I feel like, where pastor elders were esteemed and respected in society, and now if a pastor or elder is around, it's like a wet blanket. You know, you get in an airplane next to somebody, and they're like, oh, what do you do? You're like, oh, you asked, so here we go. You might be regretting this. I'm going to have to tell you about what I do, and then I'm going to have to tell you about who I serve, and then I'm going to have to tell you about who died for your, you know, and so we got to get into this whole thing, because I can't leave you on just, I'm a pastor, right? There's a sense in which, man, there's um, a world out there that has no respect for pastors. There's a reality within the church that elders wear huge targets on their back, and I'm really grateful for the fact that it says those who aspire to this desire a noble task, because it is quite the task. In other words, Paul's saying, it's a work. It's real, stinking work. It is a weighty responsibility, but it is a worthwhile responsibility, he's saying. It is worthy of the sacrifice it requires. If you think about it, men, it is hard to imagine a greater privilege or responsibility to care for Christ's blood-bought bride. I don't know if there's anything better than that. Is there anything better? One of the reasons why we opened up the 6-4 internship 
is because the elders, as we were praying, desired that this be a pipeline for aspirees to be tested and assessed and equipped for this office. In other words, it's an opportunity for those who aspire to come through the process. And I will tell you right now, we've already gotten more applications than will be in this next two years. And we're gonna have to prayerfully consider that and walk through, and I'm sure more of you slackers that are gonna put it in like the day or two before is gonna just create more for me to do, and I'm really grateful to hear your heart. Um, <laughs> all at the same time. I'm just kidding, you have till the 10th, so it's good. But we wanted to create this opportunity so you have a way in. You know, the, the first class was, guys, we've shifted it a little bit, guys who felt called into ministry. This next class is going to be guys who feel called into ministry, perhaps, but also aspire to the office of elder, even in the local church here. We want to be able to train and equip, but it starts with that aspiration. And so we believe that by the process of saying, hey, sign up for this, if you aspire, we get that first subjective internal piece of the calling to elder qualified ministry out there, and we believe that will be helpful and useful for our church. That being said, though, just because someone aspires to the office of elder does not mean they should be elders. No one's surprised by that. This requires the most godly of men, and so the second reality elder qualified men have Number one, a well-meaning aspiration. Number two, a well-demonstrated maturity. This makes sense. This is totally logical. Men at the highest level of spiritual authority in the church must be men of highest maturity. And all God's people said, please, please. This, you will see, is the focus. If you desire this task, it's a noble one. It's worth it. Weighty, but worth it. Therefore, he says, an overseer must be above reproach. Guys, in a sense, that right there could summarize everything else that comes in the qualifications. You must be above reproach. Period. In another sense, you must be above reproach is the gateway or the fountain for every other qualification that you see. You must be above reproach, okay? This is huge. What is he saying there? What he's saying is it means that you are free from legitimate accusation that would prove you unfit to lead in God's church. You are free from accusation. That you don't have anything in your life that is known by someone, some pattern of habitual sin that could be brought up against you that would bring reproach upon Christ or reproach upon his church because you're in leadership here and walking in this. Someone who is above reproach is consistent in character and integrity everywhere they go. And then out of that, being free from accusation, living a life of clear conscience in a sense, he gives all these different elements. And it's so interesting that the first dynamic of where he wants you to be living above reproach is to be a, the husband of one wife, it says. Okay? Now this is the one that gets really weird. I mean, this one's all over the place. It's like husband of one wife. Okay, well, what that means is um, you, you can never be divorced. Or you can only be married once. Or you must be married. Or, and it gets all over the place. Listen, it's like if you, if you can only be married once and then you're out, or divorced and then you're out, you'd have to show that from the text. And if you must be married or you can't be an elder, then that means Jesus and Paul are out. And to be honest with you, I would probably, no offense to my elders, I'm sure they would exchange me as well. If Jesus and Paul were in here, I'd pick them to be on the team. You know what I'm saying? Okay, love our elders. I'm sure they'd sell me out for Jesus as well. You know what I'm saying? Get him on here. You're preaching, meh, Jesus I'm not sure, though, how popular he would be, but that would be another, another conversation, but I digress. This has nothing to do with divorced or married or how many marriages you've had. This is focusing specifically, literally the language is you need to be a one-woman man. That's what it says. This is talking about the quality of your marriage. 
The focus is on how you act in your marriage. Your marital and sexual life in that relationship should be exemplary. This is crucial. If your marriage goes, men, your ministry goes, period. So, so a really easy way to determine and assess this is watch their wife. Is she flourishing? Is she being washed in the water of the word? Is she being protected? Is she being provided for? Is she being encouraged in her passions and giftings? Is she being loved? Is she being treasured like your eyes are for her only? Porn is a problem, men. And at this level, we got some serious issues and way too many men are looking at porn. And I don't think that's faithful to being a one-woman man. Amen? So you can take that and you can be a little butthurt that I just said that. Or, or you can do something about it. You can repent of your sin and you can start honoring your wife. And you can do it in the grace of God today. This is essential. He goes on. you got to be sober-minded. Thoughts driven by the truth. Okay? Thoughts driven by the truth. What's sober-minded? It's thoughts driven by the truth. As an elder, you're going to face many difficult decisions, many problems, many pressures, many circumstances, and you have to be mentally stable. You have to be able to think clearly, think sensibly, judge things rightly. You need to be sober-minded. Your thoughts need to be driven by the truth. And then it leads into being self-controlled, which is your actions being driven by the truth. Sober-minded is your thoughts. Self-controlled is your actions. Elders have to be self-controlled. Why? Because it's easy to give in to quick, superficial decisions as an elder, and that's not helpful. Elders have to be self-controlled because it is a significant weight that you carry and you can't be given to excess to cope with the demands. A lot of people have ways to deal with the stress that you work with in your jobs, right? Maybe the way you deal with tough relationships. What are you running to? Elders have to be self-controlled. They have to be balanced in their judgment. They have to be wise. They need to hem in their lives by the word of God. Self-controlled is to live a life that's hemmed in by the word. Okay? And then he goes on and says you have to live a respectable life. One who is respectable possesses a well-ordered life. Guys, this is talking about a disciplined life. This has proper priorities built in. This is honorable patterns and behaviors that are worth imitating. Do you have those patterns? Do you have those disciplines? Do you live a life by its order that you can give away and that if someone were to take some of that on, they would become, as a result, more dialed in themselves, more focused on Christ, more rightly arranged in their priorities, more rightly arranged in their affections? This is what elder qualified men are to be. They're to be respectable. And he keeps going and he gives another one. They're to be hospitable. Do you see why we're talking about a well-demonstrated maturity? This is covering a lot of ground. They're to be hospitable. You know what that is? It literally means love of strangers. Elders open their lives up every single week to the people that come to this church. We just had a pastoral candidate come in last weekend and elders are hosting them. They open their hearts. They open their lives. They open their homes the elders don't know most of you, but they're delighted to get to know you. I did not know most of you before you got here. I am delighted to get to spend time with you. Elders have a heart that loves strangers. You're strangers. You guys are co-laborers in the gospel. Amen? Co-laborers in the gospel. And so it's like, hey, we've got Christ in common. Let's go forward, right? This is what elders are to do. Now, interestingly, when he takes the next phrase, we find the only qualification in this section about gifting for elders. It's the only one. You'll notice everything else in here is about character except for this one. There's one aspect of gifting that separates the office of elder from the office of deacon, and it is the ability to teach. It's the ability to 
teach. Not just to teach anything, but to teach the truth of the word of God. In Titus 1, there is a similar listing of qualifications that Paul gives to Titus. And in Titus 1, verse 9, he expands on this idea of being able to teach by saying elders are to be ones who hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. That's what elders do. They hold firm to the truth, they can teach sound doctrine, and they can rebuke those who contradict it. And just so you know, elders spend a lot of their time rebuking those who contradict it. Elders spend a lot of their time on the fringes of the church where the rabid sheep and the wolves are. Okay? Because that's where their responsibility... See, if elders ideally are eldering well, you're protected and you don't even know how much they're serving you. But if you ever walked up to them, they'd bring you right into their home. That's the cool dynamic of a good elder. This context of teaching is not like, well, how come other elders don't... I, I explained kind of the dynamic of especially those who are preaching and teaching the word of God. How come elders don't preach up here? They're not required to preach up here. We had an elder who left the church to move to Georgia... Uh, about a year ago, he's preached up here before. Um, I'm the predominant preacher. Uh, we think there's a subset that uh, allows for that, for Timothy 5. And, and, and so, but they're teaching one-on-one. -on -one. They're teaching in counseling. They're teaching in small groups. They're teaching in all kinds of different components. And they're teaching every single time we have an issue that gets to the level of the elders in the church. So they're able to teach. This is essential. And like I said, it is that singular gifting that's built into the qualifications. And then he goes back to more character stuff. You can't be a drunkard. We hit sober-minded. Anyone just surprised at all by the fact that you can't be a drunkard and be an elder? No, it doesn't say it's a total prohibition. You can't drink, period. It says you can't be a drunkard. You can't be enslaved to a substance, specifically alcohol. You can't be a given to excessive indulgence. That's not going to help you be sober-minded, which was uh, addressed earlier. No, this is a person who's not a drunkard. This is a person who's not violent but gentle. If you're easily irritable, if you tend to fly off the handle when conflict arises or you are challenged, this is probably not the right role for you. Okay? We got some Bobby Knights in the room that would just freak out, grab a chair, and chuck it across the elder meeting room. We should get you a different job like security or something, okay? And if you're like punching holes in the wall and I have to add another like frame onto my wall because you punched a hole in it, that's a problem. This is saying you don't deal with, you don't get so frustrated that you wanna punch something. That's a sign of immaturity. Instead, you're to be gentle. The, the word, honestly, you can't capture it in the English very well, it's so much richer in the original language than what we get, but it's this idea of being graciously amenable, forbearing. And then he says this, you're not to be quarrelsome, which means you're not given to selfish arguments or contentiousness, but you strive to be a peacemaker, not like a kind of like, oh, let's smooth everything over. When we say peacemaker, we, we, we mean pursuing reconciliation by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not quarrelsome, which means you're able to separate your biblical convictions, listen to this, and appropriate levels of biblical convictions from your personal preferences. That's a tough one. You have biblical convictions, then you have to figure out what level, how strong should I hold this? And then you have to be able to separate that from what are just my personal preferences that I can lay down be an example where not quarrelsome is helpful and not a lover of money, okay? First of all, if you're in ministry for the money, that is a problem. Number one, because most don't get paid that great, okay? And number two, because it completely flips who you're serving. Jesus said it really simple. You can serve God or you can serve money, but you can't serve them both. And what happens is when you think that the church is an opportunity for you to make money, you start to tilt the ministry in your favor to fill your pockets. That's a problem. If you're not in this ultimately because you love the Lord God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, you will not endure. 
People ask me on a regular basis, what helps me to endure? I love God. I love God. And that's what keeps me going every day. If I ran the ebbs and flows of my weekly routine, I would be a mess. I love God, and he's worthy of this role and the work that's given in it. A lot of qualifications here. You can imagine that there would need to be a season of testing. It's no surprise we find in 1 Timothy 3, the next section in verse 10, speaking of deacons, he says, likewise, they must also be tested first. So this idea is not only should deacons be tested, but elders should be tested. This is part of why we have the 6-4 internship to test these character traits. Anyone can pull off solid character for a month and a half. We're looking for seasoned, enduring men of God. And we love you, and we'll be honest and straightforward and say, hey, you're not ready yet. You need to come under authority before you're in authority. That was the process of, of, of even myself walking through that. And if I had gotten slowed down, I would have slowed down. We need that in our churches. We need to submit our callings to those that are entrusted to care for the church. So, quite a lot there. Elder qualified men have, they start with a well-meaning aspiration. They have a well-demonstrated maturity. And then there's a few back-to-backs here. They have a well-managed home. They have a well-managed home. It says he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. He says, for some, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You know what he's saying there? There's a little Puritan saying that has stuck with me for a long time. If this individual's little C church isn't in order, you aren't qualified to manage the big C church. The Puritans saw the church, excuse me, the home as a little C church with the shepherd being the dad, ultimately. And if there's not good quality management, shepherding care going on in the home, why in the world would we put that person in charge of the church? So um, for the most part, uh, I feel like in our days, it's like, who do we want to be elders? I don't know who's successful. Who's a businessman who can really get things done and move real estate? Listen, success is not a problem. It's not like you're dinged for being successful. Successfulness, we pray, is a byproduct of the work you've put in. But where, where the world can seep into the church is the church saying, I'm looking for businessmen. God's looking for family men. That's who he's looking for. In fact, one of the best ways to find an elder is go talk to their kids. And when I went after the elders that we've gone um, after and have seen become elders at our church, I have talked to kids. And I have seen what they experience about their dad and his leadership in the home and how he models a type of Christ-likeness because... I know from this text that home is the proving ground for good elders. Home is the proving ground. It should transfer right from the home to the church. Which, listen, guys, this is brilliant. This is why it makes sense that the church models in its leadership the same divine design from creation as in the home because the church is really just an extension of the home and its roles there. And so this shouldn't be surprising. Husbands, you love your wives. Where's your Christ-like leadership? If it's working here, let me just give you a hint. If your leadership is working in the home, you're not having to repeat over and over again to your wife to submit to you. Okay, if you're repeating that, you're probably not ready for this role. Because those who are modeling modeling Christ-like leadership, those wives under that care flourish. They blossom. They're cared for. No one's complaining about Jesus' leadership of their lives. Well, I should take it back. Sinners compare, com- complain about Jesus' leadership in their lives. But ideally, this is a man who loves his wife. This is a man with good financial stewardship. You are to be a manager of the household. You are entrusted with that. You work hard. You provide. You prepare for the future. It's built in that out of the home was also your business in that day. We live in a different context. 
but that's built into the responsibilities. You are modeling that well inside the home, and your children are submissive. So we don't have fathers that are exasperating their kids. By doing one of two things, you either become overly controlling and harsh just to show my kids are submissive. Can you tell? And they're like quivering. And they're looking at you, I don't know, Dad, can I talk for, like, whatever you say, it's, almost, it's so intense. It can be overly harsh, but I'm an elder. All right. Or the other side is you're so laid back, there's no discipline going on at all. Maybe because you experienced it and it was over the top for you, and so you're like, ah, you know what, I'm just going to flip the other side. I'm not really going to discipline. Listen, elder qualified men have submissive children, and you know what submissive children are? They're shepherded children. They are shepherded children who are disciplined redemptively with the gospel in mind, never in an angry heart, ever, ever, ever. The first prayer you're likely praying often when you discipline your kids in that appropriate age is, dear God, help me from the anger that is rising up within me. Because whenever the greatest moments for their own growth is, it's like the worst time possible, correct? Kids like know these things. And you are to shepherd them by disciplining them redemptively and directing them intentionally towards a Christian worldview. Men, your responsibility in the home is to shape souls. And if you're shaping the souls in the home, when that's being done effectively and managed well, then you can come over and shape them in the church. Until then, you can't. There's so many notes that have to be said. There's definitely an order here. Wives first, then kids, okay? That's important. Children living in the home is the idea here, not your children that are out of the home. The language that's here is children who live in the home. And again, some people say, well, are kids required then? Do you have to have kids to be an elder? Again, it's not a requirement that you have kids. It's assumed that most men have kids, and therefore, this is a major responsibility and a great proving ground. If you can't shepherd your family, you shouldn't be shepherding God's family. That's his point. Yes? Great. Number four. We still got two more. How are we doing? You okay? You okay? You okay? You okay? Okay, okay great. I don't... I'm going to do this anyway. So, a well-seasoned faith. I'm going to do this anyway. Elder qualified men have a well-meaning aspiration, have a well-demonstrated maturity, have a well-managed home, and have a well-seasoned faith. Notice what he says in verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. No baby Christians in the role of elder. Not surprising. Not surprising. Right? You need mature Christians, and maturity requires time. You have to see if the faith they profess is an actual faith. You have to notice the depth of their walk. And ideally, what is preferred is some men that have been through some stuff. Whether spiritually in the church or in their lives, we prefer men who walk with a limp. Because you've been in the battle. And you still deem the work worthy to walk in because Christ is worthy. This is why when I started this church... By God's grace, I had a window of time that I didn't have to pick elders because we had off-site help. But one of my goals, because of my age, was I didn't want to pick anyone within 20 years of my age for a couple different reasons. Number one, I have a strong personality. You probably can't tell, but <laughs> I have a strong personality, and I didn't want it to seem like Scott runs the show. So if you put guys that are 20-plus years older than you in there, the first thing you're not concluding is they're for sure best friends you're probably also not concluding, oh, this is a good old boys club that just kind of does whatever Scott wants. I wanted a plurality of elders, and so I chose intentionally to get them older. Why? Because our church, being young itself, and the lead pastor, being young myself, needed to benefit from the wisdom and age and experience and maturity and depth of faith that men far older than me would have. And by God's grace, that has been a great, great gift to our church. This was a non-negotiable. It's a wisdom call. I didn't have to. It doesn't say anything about, hey, they got to be 20 years older than you, right? It doesn't say anything about that. 
That's a wisdom call that I made because I thought it was helpful to the church to see we believe in a plurality of godly men leading this church. I do not lead this church. I am one of the leaders. I am well-respected and loved. I am listened to, but I do not lead this church on my own, and I don't want to lead this church on my own. We have a qualified group that does it together. And the problem, what Paul's saying is, if you give a guy a role like an elder to an immature believer, you set them up for temptation. You set them up to fall into the same trap that Satan fell into. You, you are not setting him up to, 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 to thrive. You are setting him up to potentially get caught into plummeting right into the same condemnation of the enemy, getting your head so filled with, wow, I, I, I'm kind of a big deal. I mean, I get elder kind of means you're one of the most mature here. I mean, I don't want to say it, but I'm thinking it. Like, cool. And, and if you haven't worn... If you haven't been in the battles, if you don't have the scars yet, the, the, the temptation to pride is crazy. And then you just walk through some battles, and then it settles it for you. Last thing, a well-respected reputation. A well-respected reputation. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Outsiders are unbelievers. So that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. It's interesting that he says must. He must be well thought of by outsiders. You must, must have a solid reputation with unbelievers. I find it very interesting. Unbelievers are typically the best at pointing out Christian's hypocrisy. My dad had this to the, to the, you know, he just had a perception of this. My dad was an unbeliever, and he could pick out and sniff out Christian hypocrisy instantly. He kind of grew up, as we were growing up, in the church, and, and he, he committed some sin, and he was called to the mat for it. But meanwhile, he knew some of these guys in business that were going to that same church that were doing it under the radar, and they were propped up as leaders in the church. And my dad's like, that, that's such a sham. What, what he's saying here is um, elder qualified men don't take plays off. Sometimes it's like, oh, they're considering me for an elder. I need to kind of like shape up my life in some places. Elder qualified men don't need to be asked to shape up their life in certain places. If that's what you need to do when you're asked or to consider the role or whatever it is, you're aspiring to that, we're going through a process of assessment. If you're going, man, I need to kind of button up that area because I do a little bit too much here, that, uh, it could be a kind of a problem. Like, that's an issue. This is a problem, whether it's with fellow friends or workers, coworkers, neighbors, relatives, Right? You need to have a reputation that's honorable across the board because you don't take plays off in your Christian life. I'm Christian at church. I'm Christian in this context. I'm Christian in this context. But then I got my poker buddies. And we just get after it. But then I shut that down and I'm Christian over here again. And Christian, I'm Christian in most places. That's the problem. He says there's this trap that the enemy wants to set. He's picturing Satan like a cunning hunter who's looking to trap you in that give you one little piece of your life that's not hemmed in by the Lord, one little place where you feel like you can totally let your hair down to excess or sin or something like that, and you will be outed for that, and it will bring shame, and you will bring disgrace upon you and the church. And so this is essential that we dial this in. Guys, this is a serious list. But let me just say something to the church at large. Do you remember as a kid, it, you, you had to make a kindergarten poster about what you wanted to be when you grew up? And it was like who you were now, and you drew a picture of yourself, and you were like a stick figure, you know, huge head and like little body and arms. And then you talked about like what you wanted to be and different qualifications of that. And, and here it is. And then you, when you're, you know, you put it in some time capsule when you're 18, you open it again. You know what I'm talking about? Well, suppose I asked you right now, Christians, to make me a poster for next week, every single person in here, old, young, everybody, and I asked you to make me a poster, and I said, who do you want to be? 
And I said, I want it next week. I want you to tell me who you want to be. This is who you should want to be. Ladies, this is who you should want to be. In its proper context, this character is nothing more than Christian maturity. So before we look at these and go, man, that's varsity level Christianity. Thank God that's not for me, but I'm glad somebody's doing it. No, no, this is for everyone. You're like, oh, good. I don't have to be sensible. Only the pastors do. No, you need to be sensible. You need to be sober-minded. You need to be respectable. These are traits in their appropriate context that we all must follow. So listen, if you are listening to this entire message and you're going, man, I need to pray for our leaders, I agree. And then I would add yourself, what by God's grace do you need to grow in? These characteristics are for you. Don't ignore them, okay? Second thing, if you haven't considered church leadership in your selection process of a church, add it to your categories. This is a really important thing. It matters to God. You go to a church with good, godly leadership. That's biblical. Most people, when they're checking out churches, don't even have a, even remotely close to a, a solid list on what they're looking for. That's a non-negotiable. Let me just help you. You're welcome. That's free. Number three, have you submitted yourself to the care and oversight of good, godly shepherd, pastor, elders? Have you? Now, this could seem totally self-serving, like it's a ploy to get you into our church. I am not saying that at all. Here's what I'm saying as a pastor who loves you because you're Christ's. I don't care if you go here, and I don't mean that rudely. I want you to come here. Don't get me wrong. What I want more than that, though, is you to go somewhere where you are cared for. Somewhere where you submit your soul to those who will have to give an account. Somewhere where you can be a joy to the elders that are responsible to shepherd your heart. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Take the next step in your Christian maturity journey and become a part of a church where you submit your soul to elders that care for you. Does not have to be here. We would be delighted if it is but let it be somewhere. Let it be somewhere as a sign of your maturity. Okay? Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for a lot to cover. Would you make these things true of us, Lord? Would you make this true of our people in the right context? And would you raise up good godly, faithful men who aspire to this role that our church may continue to be cared well for so that all the glory would go to you and the gospel would be displayed far and wide for people to see even in the ordering of the church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.